you stuck with that reading and you um, were paying attention, you be, and you've been here with us for the last few weeks, you'll realize that we are looking at um, the subject of identity. Who do you think you are? And you're thinking, uh, you promised that we would be reading these scriptures and then be explaining um, what I'm like in 2022. You'd be helping me explain um, what I'm really like and what I'm really all about. And I just heard, I think I just heard, because I was only half listening because that was a very long reading, but I think I just heard something about cows from 2000, 3,000 years ago. Cows and the direction that they would travel in being the determining factor for whether there's a God or not. I think I just heard that in the back of my mind. I think I just heard something about somebody telling somebody to go and make some tumors. I can't even imagine... Uh, what the, if it was a blacksmith or somebody, I don't know who would be doing that kind of a job. I can't even imagine how that would go. And you're thinking to yourself, I think I should go out and read a Jordan Peterson book. Or I think I should go out and listen to a Fern Cotton podcast. If what I'm trying to, if, and I'm not knocking either. Actually, I'm partial to a little bit of both. But if you're wanting to find out what your identity is, you're thinking, oh, this is so far away. This is so far away from where I am right now. This is such a distant text. What am I to do with this text? What am I to learn from this text? So I'm going to give a pop at one reason. First of all, first thing you've got to have in your mind, or one of the things you've got to have in your mind, is these are origin stories. These are fireside, around the campfire, people living in exile, God's people, away in Babylon, most likely, telling stories that remind themselves. And you can imagine the necessity for this if you're, if you're an exiled country. The Babylonians have come in, pulled everybody out, telling stories of, of what, why they think like they do, where they're from, the story of the people, why, why you wear this, why you look a bit different, why you hold out for this value or that value. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments um, when an older relative um, starts to regale stories of where you come from. Um, like, I don't know if it's at a funeral or a family dinner or something like that. One of the older members of your family group will start to tell you the tale of, of the struggle behind where you come from or events from the past or peculiarities about your family. You know, great auntie Edna stands up at the end of the dining table and tells you about great, great uncle Bob and why he moved to Yorkshire to become a miner or something like that. And as you sit there and listen to that, if this is nothing to do with you, if this story is somebody else's story, you're going to be like, you're going to be like, it's like reading that text. You'll be like, what on earth am I just listening to? But if this is, this is your great auntie Edna, and you're really trying to figure out why, you, why your family laughs at these kind of jokes, or why your family thinks that this is a really important thing, or why your family holds out for politeness or whatever value that it is, then hearing these stories, or how you've ended up here, but your accent's a bit different, or whatever it is, hearing these stories becomes of huge value to you. There'll be people across parts of Eastern Europe at the moment that have recently fled their homeland that will be sitting down right now, and. Who knows how long this will go on for? Probably for the next however many years and regaling these kind of stories to their kids and to their wider families so that they can know their origins. These are going to become really important things, stories to tell. As Christians, and I would argue 
as people living in Christendom or post-Christendom, people living under the reflection of what church has done, what Christ has done. These stories, distant as they may sound, these stories are our origin stories. This is where we come from. This is why our origin, why we think like we do. These are, some of, these are some of the stories behind how we've come to view God, how we've come to feel about God, how we've come to have things that we hold out for that are important to us. These are our origin stories. These are the origin stories, I would argue, that's formed much of our known world. So I would say, even though it's hugely distant, even though it sounds like it's your old Auntie Edna talking about your great-great-uncle Bob, and going off on one, frankly, these are hugely significant stories for us because they explain who we are. So I'm going to go through it super quick, so the tech team are going to have to be all over it. I don't know who's on, <laughs> I don't know who's on tech today, but we're going to do it like in a nutshell. So that was a lot of reading, and I'm just going to try and like fire through it. I'm going for like four or five minutes, something like that. Sometimes I fail when I set myself that kind of target. So it's like hold on to your hats, try and consume as much as you can. We're going to get as much of the tech on the board as, on the board, is that a board? Whatever that is, on the board, on the screen as we can. And then we're going to try and get through this story and you can sort of absorb, absorb it. I want you to have in your mind, this would be easier for some people than others, Game of Thrones or the, that Viking series that's on. It's too violent probably for most people to watch, but it's on there. Do you know this idea? This, this is the frame of reference. If, you, if you've not got Netflix or, or you don't choose to watch this kind of thing, just think of seriously warring kingdoms. Seriously warring kingdoms that use gods to get them their victories. That gods play such a strong part of life. Gods with a small g in their everyday life. Gods mean that you're going to get your harvest in. Gods mean that you're going to marry this person. Gods mean, more often than not in these stories, that you're going to win the war. So that's what goes on. In chapter 5, verse 1 to 5, we hear the story of, when, of the Philistines winning. The Philistines win the battle. They were, they were battling all the time. Yeah, so it's chapter five, that's it, chapter five, verse one to five. The Philistines win, win the battle. And if you've read, if you've been in Sunday school as a kid or you're familiar with any other history of the children of Israel, you know that these people were fighting all the time. The Philistines win and they nick their God because that's, that's what you did. In this culture at this time, you'd nick the God and then that would mean that, and, and you'd almost pull the God into your group and you'd say, this God will now sit under our God. That's how it was. So that's what they did. They nicked the ark and they put it in Dagon's palace. This like big wooden, um, no, I, don't, I don't necessarily know that it was wooden, this big, you know, this big object, this big sculpture. So you can imagine the ark there and Dagon there. And stay around the fireside because it's a fireside story. And I think this first time, a couple of times I read it, I was like, oh man, where are we going to go with this? But as, as I read it more and more, I realized that this is, this is to get, this, is, this will get, the people around the fireside are going to be laughing at this moment. These people are in exile. They need something to cling on to. They're wondering how on earth they're going to get Back to, back to their homeland. They're wondering what they're going to do with this faith that they've got in their God. And these stories would ring true and give them hope about that. Dagon, it's a really cool story. Dagon, in the middle of the night, falls over. This big, this big statue falls over. So they go back in and they're like, oh, this isn't very good. Their God's still in one piece. We need to stand our God back up. So they stand him back up. So all the people in Israel around the fireside, they're laughing. They're like, their God's not even a real God. The next night, Dagon falls over, head falls off. Head falls off their God. Um, we, we, somebody who loves me very much for my recent 43rd birthday bought me, um, I mean, it was my lovely mum, she bought me an ornament. I've never, nobody's ever bought me an ornament in my life. And as we opened it up, I'm like, 
I don't know what to, I don't know what to do with this. And then, true story, last night, I sat it on the table, somebody knocked it off, its head fell off. We all laughed, because that's what you do. And we thought, well, we don't have to worry about that anymore, because its head's fallen off. And that's a little bit similar to what's happened here. His head's fallen off. Dagon's head's fallen off. Everyone's laughing. Our God, that's not a God. God's heads don't fall off. But it gets worse for the Philistines. It gets way, way worse than that. All of the towns along the way, this is verse 1 through 12. Yeah, well, I guess 5 through 12. Every town, and if you read between the lines here, there's a, there's a plague of rats. Everywhere that the Ark of the Covenant goes, people are getting tumors. People are getting something that sounds to me like the plague. Every, every, everywhere that you go in this moment. My father-in-law, who visited, um, used to do some work out in Tanzania, once described very graphically the time when he visited a town and it had been infested by rats. And he literally said the rats were just everywhere. It reads kind of like this sort of a story. So what the Philistines did, try and beat this, would just keep moving the Ark of the Covenant. We move it on. You've heard about these five great towns. Move it on, town to town. Keep moving it around. They eventually reached a point where they thought the only cure for this, because people were dying everywhere and it was awful, the only cure for this is to give it back to them. This is the only thing we can do. But what they're trying to work out is, because it's all about gods, how do we keep, how do we dismiss their God? How do we not let it look like it's a God thing? But how do we get rid of it? Because it clearly is doing something bad to our people. How do we achieve both of those things? So they hatched a plan. The diviners came to them. This is chapter 6 now, verse 1 through to 6. So we're nearly there. We're going at a bit of a rate. The diviners say to them, make some, and again, I don't know what the blacksmiths made of this. I don't know who, I don't know who dealt with this. Make some golden rats. And, and I, think, I think I kind of would imagine whereabouts you would go with that. And make some golden tumors. That's a bit of a free hit, I think, for a blacksmith, isn't it? Just what are you going to come up with if you're supposed to do that? And then, you know, do five of them. Send them round each city. But, and you, can you, I don't know if you noticed in the text, this is verse 7 through to 9, can you see what they're trying to achieve when they do this? They say to them, send, so, so make a cart, stick the ark on the cart, and send it on two cows, two uncarved, newly carved cows. Two new mum cows. I don't really know the terminology for, for that. Two new mum cows, unyoked. And the thinking is, in this moment, and, and I guess what they say is, if, if they go straight back to Israel, then we know that it's God. If they go straight back to Israel, we know that it's God. If they waver at all, we'll know that it's not really God. But they hatch the plan to make it fail. They hatch the plan so, of course, these cows aren't going to go there. They're new mum cows. They're going to get halfway down the road. They've never been hitched together, yoked as in when you put like the yoke on top of the cow so you can plow the field. They're going to just kick off. And you can imagine, I think, it says in the text, I'm not quite sure of the verse, that all the Philistine leaders were watching this. And you can imagine their chat, I think, as it goes. It's like, don't worry, John, or whatever, whatever it's called, don't worry. In 20 yards, that cow's going to kick off because it's calf's over there. It's, it's never going to ham. We are safe. This is going to work like a dream. The cows are going to take the cart so far down. We're going to be shot of the ark and still, and then the cows are going to turn around and people are going to see that this God's not real. But do you know what happens? Do you see what happens in the text? Verse 12. The cows, yeah, next slide, the verse 12. The cows make a beeline for the people of Israel. 
they fly there to the people of Israel and they stop right on cue. And the Philistine leaders are looking on going, what on earth is this? Now, people of Israel, the farmers of Beth Shemesh, I think it's called, are just... So what's happened in this text, remember Boyd's sermon last week, the glory of God is gone. They've lost the ark. And they're looking at this thinking, there's no way back for us as a people. Our God's left us. How on earth? They're thinking we're going to have to go back to battle. We're going to have to, how on earth are we going to get this thing back? And yet, without them even organizing their troops, over the brow of the hill comes the ark of the covenant of God. And not only does it come over the brow of the hill, there's this kind of lovely moment where, I guess unbeknownst to the Philistines, or maybe, I don't know, unbeknownst to the Philistines, they've equipped the people of Israel to do what they do when they celebrate. When, when, when Israel celebrates before a holy God, they'll make a sacrifice, they'll sacrifice a cow, and there you go, what have they sent to Israel? All the equipment for this sacrifice. You've got the newly wooden cart that you can just chop up, and you've got the two cows right there. This is what would have happened. It would have been like a, Amazon direct delivery for them to make a sacrifice to their God. And the people would have heard this story, gathered around the fireside in Babylon, absent from home, missing home, wondering how on earth they're going to get back to Israel, wondering how on earth things are going to come right. They would have been so buoyed by this story. They were like, yes, this is our God. This is what a relationship with God looks like. They would have had that sense of the special people that they were, the unique people that they were. They would have had that sense. But then the story goes on. And I imagine, I don't know if, you've, I don't know if you're good at telling campfire stories, but I imagine at this moment, because this story would have been told over and over again, because there's a twist coming in this story. I would imagine parents looking on, seeing the little children listen to the story, would have been going, maybe you should go to bed at this moment. Maybe you should nick out. And imagine the storyteller just letting the silence and the crackle of the fire go on because there's a book coming. The book is in verse 19 of chapter 6. See what God does? In verse 19 of chapter 6, I don't know if it's on there. God struck down the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked at the ark of the Lord. They've been listening to this story They've been buoyed by this story. And then there's this twist. God strikes down 70 people. People are thinking they're hearing a story about how special they are. Realize, even though they are a special people, they're in the same, in terms of the holiness of God, they're in the same boat as everybody else. God, the main point of the story is, is too holy for everybody. It's a, you're thinking it's a story about a special people, and in a sense that it is, but it's more than that. It's a story about how holy God is. Two things to say about this. That's the end of the story. Well done for sticking in. Hopefully that's given you some sort of perspective of, of this story. Two things to say about it. First thing I think God does in this text, God's word does to us in this text, and I think we need it, is that it deconstructs our view of God. It pulls it apart and it challenges our view of God. I think it's really interesting and I guess I find this out a little bit as, and maybe you do too as you talk to people about faith and reasons that they come to faith. What people base their actual judgments of God on, how they make their actual assessments of whether there's a God or not. 
what those actual things are. So we've got on one hand, you've got, you've got the Bible and you've got theology books that seek to describe who God is, that we can learn about the nature of God. And I guess on the other hand, you've got strong atheistic argument as to why there isn't a God. And people go here all the time. Maybe it's just the people of cast that I talk to. Maybe it's just the people around here. But so much I find of what people base their view of God on is not necessarily the theology books or always even what the Bible's saying about God or the strong atheistic reasoned arguments. It's the everyday, almost insignificant moments. It's whether I'm doing well or whether I'm doing badly. It's the same stuff that's going on in this text. We consider him as the Philistines did, only when the going gets tough. We consider the merits of God in our life when things get really tough. There's that line um, from Travis, why does it always rain on me? Hopefully this line transcends more than just people from the 90s. Why does it always rain on me? Is it because I lied when I was 17? There's this idea that we get to thinking about the divine when we reflect on if things are going wrong for us. So much of what we think about God can just be based on when it gets tough. Is there a God because it gets tough? Is God there for me now that it's tough? So much of our theology is done in, that, in, a, in just how it affects us. We base our opinion of God on how strong we are or how strong things are going for God at the moment. So in the text we saw the Philistines think that they needed to stand their God up to be stronger than the other God. We saw the Israelites thinking we need, we need to win a battle to get this thing back. So, so much of, I think, how we hang on to God, how we view God, is based on almost those kind of trivialities. How, how strong we are in the moment, how our faith's going. Even down to the, like, seeing a documentary that really extols the merits of God and we're buoyed by that, or seeing a documentary that really condemns the merits of God, and we're broken by that. Seeing a Twitter feed that really exalts God, and you see the argument pan out, and you see the strength of the argument, you go, oh yeah, there's a God. And then you see another Twitter feed, and, you, and it condemns it, and you feel broken. And we're, we're working out whether there's a God based on these sorts of things. We think on him in terms of whose side he's on. Very much like the Philistines and the Israelites did. We're thinking about the things that we want to do and we base our decisions on God and whether he's real or what we're going to do with him based on whether the thing that we want to do, the thing that's on our agenda, and we see, I guess, political leaders and national leaders do this kind of thing all the time and say, yeah, we're going to do this and God's with us in this. And this is how we sort of work out where God is. And I think in this text, and obviously that's not all there is to the working out of God, but I think it sums up a lot, it sums up a lot of where I've been in my 40 odd years. God smashes that up in this story. You see the way that he, he destroys that point of view. He pulls it apart. He teases it all out, takes it all away. We see that God is the same in every circumstance, not just when people are struggling. We see him constant. It doesn't affect whether he's there if we're going through a tough time. He's there constant. He doesn't need us to be doing well, for him to be real. See the way that he wins his own battles? He doesn't need the Israelites to come and save him. I mean, Christian life is a lot about that, and it's going to be a lot about that for the Israelites, but God doesn't need them to do that. He comes over the hill on his own. It's amazing. 
He's completely impartial. Yeah, these people are holy. These people are set apart. These people are set apart people. But in terms of the holiness of God and what that means for them, they're no different than anybody else. In that sense, God's got no sides. Their view of God, I think, needed smashing up. I don't know what your view of God is. I don't know how you make your decisions. I don't know whether you read the big theology books, whether you spend all your time you know, in, a, in apologetics, countering it. Loads of the time, I think we make our decisions on how things are going for us. What's happening in our lives if it's a struggle, if he's on our side with the thing that we're doing. I think sometimes it's like that. And I think God says to us in his text, I need to, I think he says to us, there is so much more to me than that. For you to truly live, for you to truly have hope, there is so much more to me than the narrow view that you've got. I need to break that up. You need to see again me coming over the brow of that hill. You thinking that you need to win the battle for me and me just bringing you that victory. You need to see again the way that I provide out of the blue, almost Amazon style, a sacrifice for your joy and your comfort and your victory. You need to see that it's me that's doing that. This is the first thing I think God wants us to do in this text. He says, let me just try and break down. Let me try and deconstruct this view of me that you've constructed because there's so much more to me than that. The second thing that I think he does, and I love this because I love stories, and I think this is some of these texts are about stories. He doesn't just deconstruct it. He takes it somewhere. He builds it back up. He reconstructs uh, their view of God. And I think story, so there's all sorts of ways to educate, but I don't know about you. I don't get on very well when somebody just reads out a bunch of stuff that I've got to memorize. If, if I'm what I can... Re- recall all sorts of things with great detail if I'm watching it in a film. And it's more than that. I can really grasp stuff. When you enter into a story, I think that's why we learn a lot from movies and things like that and books, because we immerse ourselves. When you hear the story, you become um, empathetic towards the characters and you can learn incredible things. I would, um, I would, I would be careful um, watching romantic comedies because of the se- genuinely, I've, I've learned this lesson the hard way, because of the serious lessons that can come at the end of them. You start watching the romantic comedy and you start off by saying, yeah, I'm a, I see that I'm a bit like this. They get under your skin. You look at the, the man-woman relationship, you look at how the dynamics work out and you say, yeah, I, oh yeah. Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a bloke or I'm a lady. Yeah, I do this. Oh yeah, I do that. And, and then, you see, they write them so well. They've got you. You're hooked. You start saying stuff like, yeah, I do that. And once they've got you, you are totally susceptible to being exposed. And if you're watching this as a couple or something like that, in romantic comedies, you get nudges across the couch because people go, oh, yeah, you do that. You do that all that time. You can get the sharp lessons. And as you watch the story come along, you're vulnerable at the end, the climactic end, to whatever the big moral lesson they want to tell you is because you're engaged in the story. They've taken you along the line. That's exactly what happened with the people of Israel in this story. It's almost like God pause, or the storyteller, or he's God, pause honey in their ear. Listen to this. This is what it's like to have a relationship with me. And everybody's on board, and everyone's listening and said, yeah, this is what God does. This is what it's like to be with God. He fights our battles. We're a special people. And then you get to that point, and he says, yeah. And then 70 people were killed because they looked in at the Ark of the Covenant. And he drops the bomb. And all the way through, you're thinking it's a story about 
you've been blessed or about the relationship, special relationship you've got, and God drops the bomb and says, yeah, this is really about holiness. And you can't ignore it because you've been sucked in by the story. Knowing God, it's not about what side you're on. It's not about if it helps you in the battle. It's about God being holy. It's about understanding that God's holy, otherly, self-sufficient, just. And in this text, and in verse 20 of this text, we see that he's so holy, so universally holy. And this is where the story leaves us, that it's terrifying. And the people say, not just the people of Felicia, that's what you call it, go away, we can't have you, we need to get rid of you. The people of Israel say, where are we going to put this God? What are we going to do with this God? Everyone listening to the campfire story realized that, yeah, they've got a special relationship with God, but if God is holy, what on earth do we do with God? We've got to get rid of him. We've got to send him up somewhere else because he can't stay here. Question for us is, because what I'm saying to you is God is so holy. That's the message. God is so holy that it's terrifying. He's so holy that it's terrifying. What do we do with that information? Do we... You, I guess if, you, if, you're not, uh, if you're not a believer, as it were, if you, if you don't have faith in God, this might be something that causes you to really, you know, I see that holiness, I see, I see what you're saying about who God is, and I can't do any business with a God like that. Maybe you have got faith, maybe you're working things through from a position of faith, and you think, oh, I kind of see that holiness stuff. I'm going to stay in the New Testament, thank you, because it seems a lot milder there. I can't really deal with that, so my faith's going to carry on, but I'm going to keep some of that stuff at arm's length. I'm going to just carry on. Like that. How do we cope with that? We need to keep in mind, and this is the wrap up there. We need to keep in mind the full picture of the Bible, what the Bible's saying to us. This is the verse um, that I should have read out at the start that I didn't read out at the start. It's in Romans 15 4, and it tells us how to think about the Bible. And there's many New Testament verses that say similar things. It says, uh, Romans 15 4, if you need to check it out later, uh, for everything that was written in the past was written to teachers. So that through endurance, taught in the scriptures, and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. All of these stories are telling us the bigger story. Telling us the story of Jesus. So we get to the New Testament. We've got to get to the New Testament because we've got to see the big story. And I think this is 90s word. I think this is ace. I studied this this week and my faith was affirmed. I was joyous in a geeky Bible Thursday morning, reading my Bible kind of a way. I think it's amazing news. We get to Jesus in the New Testament. And yes, Jesus is nice. Everybody follows him. He does miracles, all this kind of thing. But the other thing about Jesus is, and this is pretty consistent as he travels around, he's terrifying. He's scary. People come across him and his justice and his miracles. And they say, really great to have you. <laughs> Interesting what you said but you might need to go. Read through the Gospels. It's incredible. One that comes to mind, or came to mind straight, straight away, was when Jesus healed the two guys that were demon-possessed from the mountain. He heals them. It's this great story. They've not been well forever. It's an incredible story for this town. The demons get thrown into this um, herd of pigs. The pigs go off the end of the cliff, and the people come from the village. Lovely to have you. But can you go? This is too scary. For us, story after story, people welcome Jesus and they'll say, can you go? Jesus rides into Jerusalem. 
probably the ultimate example of this, rides into Jerusalem with a kingdom that can bring so much joy to people. With people looking at it going, yeah, this is ace. This is amazing. This is life-changing. There's, there's forgiveness. There's equality. There's justice. There's care for everybody. They see that, like black and white. And how do they respond to it? It's too much, too much forgiveness. It's too holy, too much justice. It blows them away. And what do they do with him? They say, we can't have this man to reign over us. They get rid of him. He's got, in that sense, no sides. He's perfectly just. He can look after himself. And the people say, who can stand this? It has to go. But this is not, and this is the ace bit. This is not the full story. He is holy. His holiness is scary for people. That's not the full story. As he's made known, as he's made known to people, as people enter the story, people are enabled to stay near him. More than that, they enjoy staying near him. One of my favorite stories is in Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through to 7. Um, so I've probably preached on this more than I ought. It's the story when Jesus goes fishing with the disciples. Um, disciples are fishermen, and they're out fishing, and they've caught nothing. They're fishermen, and they've caught nothing. It's a bad night at, at the office. Jesus tells them to fish on the other side. They come back with a fish, uh, a fish catch that is, is life-changing. And they realize hanging around with this guy changes everything for them. Everything changes. They've got somebody in their company that can provide everything that they're ever going to need. Somebody that can save them. Somebody that can mean they don't have to worry about money, food, anything like that. Peter, verse 8. Peter sees this guy. What does he say? See that in the text? Peter saw this. He He fell at Jesus' knees and he says, Go away. This is too holy. Go away from me. Even in this brilliant moment, it's too holy. Go away from me. But that is not all that happens in this ace story. Because God's been made known to him. You've got this God in the Old Testament who's holy, but in a sense not fully known yet. So much terror there. So much awe there. And in the New Testament, there's still awe. There's still terror but we know who he is. Peter enters the story. He's part of this story. He's experiencing it. He's caught up in the narrative and he begins to know who this God is through Jesus. And in this moment, he sees himself for who he is. He owns the person that he is. He sees the sin that's in him. And he says, not just go away, but go away because because I'm not worthy of who you are. He recognizes who he is. He recognizes who God is. And see in verse 10, this changes things. See what Jesus says to him? This is a holy God. This is a God who's been scaring him for a while. Jesus says, beautiful words. People of the Old Testament could have done with this. Find it in Jesus, knowing God in Jesus. Jesus says, no need to be afraid. Don't be afraid. What is he saying? We can stay together now. You can dwell here with me now. More than this, he says, you can make fishes of men. You can become part of this. 
you can become part of this holy story, even more than this. Verse 11. They pulled up their boats on the shore, left everything, and followed him. We've had this story in the Bible of people encountering God and not being able to stay in his presence and needing him to leave. We've had people engage with Jesus, see his holiness, and want to do away with him. These people find out who he is. They see that he's good. And they are happy to drop everything to pursue this holy thing that nobody could stay around. It's a game changer. God is holy. God is holy. And there are things, I think, that we read about him in the Bible, places that he calls us to um, that will uh, just blow our minds that are difficult to accept, holy things, that are going to mean change for us, change that we think, how on earth are we going to do this? But when you know who God is, that ceases to be something you want to leg it from and shove away, and it becomes something that you are happy to engage with, that you realize you can stay with, and you would do anything to follow. <clears throat> 